I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Kirsty Major, Commissioning Editor at The Independent, and this is Double Take, a podcast in which our writers come into the studio to read and discuss one of their opinion pieces. It could be their weekly column or something from the archives that shines some light on this week's news. Today we are joined by Tom Peck, the Independent's parliamentary sketch writer, who will be reading and discussing his piece, If Nigel Farage thinks it's high time all youngsters are made to see Dunkirk, he's entirely missed the point of it. It's the use of the word youngster that elevates it to a thing of wonder. Without the word youngster, it would merely be a career politician who claims to be a man of the people going to the cinema in a suit and tie. If you are under the age of 30, you may need to be told that youngster is a word once used by middle-aged people to refer to the generation below them while simultaneously trying to avoid being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. You may also need to be told that Nigel Farage has urged you to go and see the movie Dunkirk. I urge every youngster to go out and watch Dunkirk, the grand high wizard of Brexit said on Twitter last week accompanied by the no-means-obligatory picture of himself, presumably at his local Odeon, standing next to the poster in his by-no-means-obligatory late-90s office wear. Perhaps when you are the same age as Brad Pitt, but commonly assumed to be several decades older, you have some propriety over terms like youngster. Perhaps when you have a view of the world entirely untarnished by whole generations of human progress, you can indeed be born in 1964, go straight from boarding school to the City of London, yet still have some imagined claim to a superior understanding of sacrifice, a superior knowledge of struggle, than a generation who have graduated into a decade of economic stagnation, and who, by the way, are about to be plunged into another one by you. Such was the brevity of the Farage endorsement, we cannot know whether it was merely the astounding cinematography or the surprisingly accomplished performance of Harry Styles, or, more likely, a misty-eyed longing for the good old days of industrialised warfare, which so impressed him. We all see what we want to see. We all shape the evidence to support our narrative. For Farage, no doubt, there is glory in old England, standing up to the enemy, defending our island, whatever the cost may be. If only the youngsters of today wanted to fight on the beaches, get maimed in the streets, step on a mine in the landing grounds and die with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. Though youngster, I am not. I happened to see the movie at the weekend at the same time as our current Prime Minister was marking the centenary of the Battle of Passchendaele, a human abomination that marks the genesis of Dunkirk and what came after it. I am of a different political persuasion to Nigel Farage, but I spent the full 106 minutes in a state of fear and dread as the German planes strafed and bullets flew and men burned in seas of oil in grim wonderment at the awesome power of nation-states and the mind-bending horrors they can achieve when directed either by design or sheer stupidity towards malevolent ends. Of how we have decided now is the time to rip up the consensus that has kept us safe and delivered us, though imperfectly, a better life than any that has come before. I happen to think about my great-uncle, Victor, so-called because he was born in November 1918 and who drowned at El Alamein, 
casting a long, dark shadow over the lives of his seven brothers and sisters, one of whom was my grandmother. The raw anguish of his death lived on well into the 90s and my own childhood. I thought of how his short, bad life was handed to him by forces far beyond his control. I thought of the dreadful politics of war and peace in Europe in the years before his death and the years of his childhood. Generations of misery doled out by idiots from which humanity took almost a century to recover. The glorification of that war by a gilded generation far too young to know anything of it is a common trope on the right of politics. The BNP has a history of using images of Spitfires in its campaigns. When David Davis was told at the start of this year that the civil service did not have the capacity to handle Brexit, he breezily quipped that the service was a lot bigger than when it won the war. The view persists that Britain was somehow at its best when its young men were fighting and dying against the nations that are now our friends and neighbours. The idea that the European Union, the eastern expansion of which reduced the old German Chancellor Helmut Kohl to tears of joy, has largely maintained peace for longer than at any point in Europe's history, has become almost boring. Now, the European Union is something that is safe to be tampered with. Back in our lifetimes, it is again the wreckers that have their hands at the controls, the ones for whom, again, it is all a grand gilded game. It's impossible to look, for example, at the Foreign Secretary travelling to Sydney to give a dim, crass, counterfactual speech on the imagined future of Australia had it been allowed to join the European community in the 1970s and not see the embodiment of that degenerate aristocrat general. As if the world is an undergraduate essay or a newspaper column, that the correct course of action of a nation can be justified if you can make a 900-word case for it. How telling, by the way, that Johnson wrote two columns, one for and against Brexit, as if that were the way to decide, the more persuasive column, the right thing to do. At no point did he appear to pause and realise the regressive case is always easier to make than the progressive one. This, really, is the struggle that shapes history. Unfortunately, for the time being, we are going backwards. The rest of the world is not, by the way, just us. The question is whether we will ever recover. Acceleration has never been faster. It is us and no one else who has slammed the car into reverse at high speed. I wouldn't have the temerity to urge all youngsters to do anything in particular, particularly as if, if you do want to stand up against those who will smash your little lives to smithereens for a phony ideology a hundred years out of date, it would appear already to be too late. If you would like to have your say on the episode, you can tweet us at Tom Peck and at Kirsty underscore Major. Up next, we ask Tom what it is like to write satire in an age where it seems to pen itself. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Tom. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. How was Dunkirk? Did you enjoy it then? Um, believe it or not, I was probably not as wowed by it as other people have been, but I think when a film has got such big anticipation, you sort of sit in your seat and are a bit sort of like, right, impressed me. I also happened to see it on a very small screen. Um, so I didn't actually enjoy it as much as I thought I would. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it yet. And I don't think... Well, I have a big thing. I hate war films because I hate the jingoism and the sort of World War Two sentimentality that I think exudes from parts of the UK. So I have a real problem with it, which is, I think, Even your issue. Even with Harry Styles in it? I'm actually not a big One Direction fan, but that's for Blimey. another podcast. You are hard to impress. <laughs> no One Direction, no war films. <laughs> What's a girl to do? But that's the... That's, what you found difficult about it, right? That it was it's centered in this context of Brexit. Um, kind of. I mean, I must say I feel slightly embarrassed because having written this column about Dunkirk, there have now been a whole wave of other columns of people saying, can columnists stop writing about Dunkirk? But it's too late for me on that front. What I was more angry about, really, which inspired me to write what I did, wasn't really the film. It was actually just Nigel Farage standing outside the cinema, tweeting a picture of it. And this, and telling youngsters to go out and watch it. This, this idea that he has some propriety over a generation which he is not part of their struggle, and that youngsters can't possibly know anything about it when they know far more of struggle and far more of hardship and far more of not getting things their own way than he ever has or ever will. But so I know that since it happened, since the film came out, so many people have written columns sort of suggesting that it's a pro-Brexit film because of the spirit of Dunkirk. And so many people suggested it isn't because, well, it is. In a, well, the, the film is about Europe at war with at war with what European nations at war with one another, and the European Union has had success, unrivaled success in long, in longevity terms of preventing European nations having war with one another. So, from that sense, it is an anti-Brexit film. But the, my main issue why, why I decided to write about it was the Farage angle rather than anything else. I always feel like people like Farage, your sort of your Brexit boys, mm. they come from it from this angle, this theoretical angle of sovereignty. And, you know, they, they really feel like Britain has to go back to a certain time. But for a lot of people who voted Brexit, I feel like maybe the reason they voted for it was their material conditions. It was that hardship that led them to vote for Brexit. So I wonder whether there's two very different strange strains in British society pushing it forward. Do you agree or do you think it's... Well, 17 million people voted to leave the European Union and they will all have very, very, very different reasons. That is one of the great mystifying complexities of democracy is that you take millions of different people's stories, millions of motivations, millions of causes, and you hand them a very blunt instrument, a vote, and then you count up all those votes and in, and in somewhere a nation has made a decision. But it is always very, very muddled. And, you will all, and then after it happening it will always be subject to millions upon millions upon millions of interpretations. But specifically Nigel Farage, and specifically that sovereignty side that you were talking about. So if you want to talk about the reasons people voted, and, you, and I understand the thing that you're saying, which is essentially people who are not doing very well out of life and wanted change. But in my opinion, the, the, the fact that swung the referendum the way that it did is because the nostalgia vote was a vote for change, which is not normal in referendums. So if you take Scottish independence, what happens there is the quiet, unfussed, aging people of Scotland just quietly go out 
and vote for things to stay the same. That happens in when Quebec eventually voted to remain part of Canada. That happened when New Zealand had a referendum on whether or not to change its flag. The old change-resistant people who are quite quiet, they're not radical, they're not campaigning, they just quietly go to the ballot box and say, no, nope, we'll keep things the way they are. Which is why Brexit was not like any other referendum, because those people actually voted for change. For them, elderly people who like things the way they are, the status quo was 1973. And that was the decisive swing factor in it, in my opinion. So if we're talking just about those people who I think are more similar in outlook to someone like Nigel Farage, then it is about sovereignty and it is about Britain and it is about, for example, not having European judges making our laws, deciding what we want, us, us making our own decisions, us making our own rules. Unfortunately, that argument is totally and utterly bogus, the idea that we'd ever surrendered any sovereignty, because, of course, we had a referendum. We're leaving the European Union. You know, we, something which we chose to go into, which our leaders who we democratically elected chose to take us into. And now, by reclaiming our sovereignty, all that is really shown is that we never lost it in the first place. And all that we really gain is some really disastrous consequences that a lot of these sovereignty weirdos, in my opinion, would even begin to acknowledge will be disastrous. And then there's another element to it, which is people who maybe think we can make the best of a bad situation. And I feel like Camp Corbyn falls into this this way of thinking, which is, okay, so Brexit's happened. These people, for whatever reason, have have led this to come about. Why don't we use this as an opportunity to get rid of EU competition laws, which holds the UK back from uh, allowing us to nationalise more services, allowing us to change the way we procure services? So I wonder whether there's a more progressive element to Brexit that we're not really talking about yet. There could be, in theory, but I don't think it will ever happen. And Labour and Jeremy Corbyn are in a difficult position because the country voted to do it. Jeremy Corbyn is obviously pro it and has been pro leaving the European Union all of his life for his own set of reasons, which are socialist reasons, and that's fine. But Brexit is essentially the only thing that matters. Um, and if you are Jeremy Corbyn and you're sort of saying it's OK, for example, to leave the single market, but then simultaneously you have these progressive policies that are popular with people. Um, the, the Corbyn fans always say this, don't they? Well, actually, education, money for, money for the NHS, sorting out national services. Well, you can't claim that you're going to do those things and claim that you're going to take Britain out of the single market because the consequences of coming out of the single market will be catastrophic and, then and arguably temporary. But I don't think there's any sensible person who doesn't think it won't, say, take 10 years to sort out. And at that point, what Corbyn says he might do with the NHS, with schools, with hospitals, with, with prison reform, with mental health, all of those things melt away because they cannot happen. If you, if not under Corbyn's watch anyway, the guy will be 70 at the next election if the next election happens when it's supposed to happen. So all of those progressive things that lots of Corbyn fans like, they won't get them if they are going to ignore the single market thing, which is the only thing that matters really. So you think if Brexit happens, we have to stay in the single market for any sort of good conclusion to come of it for, for jeremy corbyn to achieve any of the progressive things that he wants to achieve which costs a lot of money an end to austerity and so on and so forth they will be much much harder to the point of realistically being impossible in his political lifetime to achieve so those policies so, so those promises don't really count for very much i mean it's exactly what, what we were just saying i don't know five minutes ago about how all of these people make their own decisions. They like this policy, they like that policy, and it all goes into a big melting pot and it's very complicated. So there will be lots of people who will vote Labour and be pro-Corbyn because they like the progressive policies and will ignore 
they will have to ignore the single market thing. But it's the single market thing that will trump all of them because the progressive stuff can't really be done. There is definitely a cognitive dissonance, I think, yeah, in a lot of Labour voters right now. It's just, I'll, I'll deal with that issue in a minute. <laughs> yeah, but well, there is in all the voters. The same can be said for the Tories. So our colleague, Sean O'Grady, wrote, <laughs> not he's a Tory, uh, wrote... Used to, we used to work for the Lib Dems. Used was to work chief for the Lib Dems, I Charlie know he Kennedy. was. <laughs> Surprises some people that. So he wrote a piece recently saying that Brexit will be worth it, but we will have to endure sacrifices that we haven't seen since the Second World War quite aptly for this discussion <laughs> um, and his thinking was it's going to be really crap in the short term when we leave the single market but afterwards we'll be really nimble and able to take on emerging markets so there's also there's a lot of blue sky thinking on the other side as well would you agree um what well, i think i think sean's argument there is quite correct and that's not necessarily a different argument to the one that i'm making or different from the one that um this is it's the same thing that i'm saying it's the, it's the same thing that that labor voters it's the same problem jeremy corbyn has i mean i'm i'm i think i'm trying to say that corbyn will not be able to do anything good with the nhs because there'll be no money because it will come out of the single market but it might be able in seven ten years time there may be some possibilities there but it'll be too late for corbyn and his army of bands i think that's the same thing that sean is saying which is that it will be disasters in the short term but in the medium to long term there'll be opportunities i mean that that's that's the same argument so clearly on both sides there's a, there's a hope that we're in the situation we can make the best of it. But what I worry about, and I think you really you touched on this in your piece, and I was really grateful to read it as someone who is kind of young. Um, <laughs> this I'm kind of young as well. We're all, yeah, 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 we're still cool. <laughs> this isn't abstract for a lot of people. Okay, so for the next 10 years, the UK finds it really difficult, but then we'll eventually strike up deals and be able to adapt more quickly to the you know developing markets. But that's 10 years worth of people having babies, buying houses, being out of jobs, wages stagnating. And I think you touched on this, and I think mm. that's what someone like Farage isn't able to comprehend. Oh, sure. Nigel Farage is 53, believe it or not. I mean, that's the state. He's the same age as Brad Pitt. Um, but if you're 53, you're pretty sure that you're going to be 63 in about six months. But if you're 21, you're going to be 31 in your head in about 100 million years' time. So this lost decade, uh, where we're just going to sort of have a, a Parker decade and then things will be okay in 10 years' time, if you're 53, then fine, although you're not fine because you want to retire in that decade and it will dramatically affect the value of your pension at the age of which you retire. But if you're 22, 23, 24, you don't really want the most crucial part of your life to be Britain's lost decade, thank you very much. Um, it's extremely bad news. Do you think there's a way out of it? Do you think there's a silver lining at all? Or are we on the Brexit road and there's no way back? I don't see a way out of it, really. I mean, there's talk of a second referendum. Um, if there was a second re referendum, by the way, I'm not convinced it would, wouldn't be an even larger vote to leave. Um, it was a reckless gamble. Um, it's, and it was a gamble that David Cameron never, ever, ever considered that he might lose, even though he was told by George Osborne that he might lose. Um, it was done to sort of... What's frustrating is that the stakes were inaccurately imagined too because it was done to reconcile the Conservative Party which it would never have done I mean I was standing next to Nigel Farage at half past 11 at night on June the 23rd when he imagined that he had lost and was giving this strange speech into the TV cameras saying win or lose tonight we will win this battle we will win this war we will get our country back we will get our borders back so the idea that if it had been 52-48 the other way around the problem would have gone away is ridiculous it does, the problem doesn't referendums don't make anything go away they make everything worse look at Scotland so even if 
the gamble had paid off, it would still have been the wrong decision to take the gamble, which is why it's such a remarkable, well, in my opinion, tragedy, really. I, I can't tell you that I can see a great way out of it because to do that, I would have to pick through the path of the next two years of politics. And I don't know if you've seen the last two. It cannot be done. I it, cannot be, <laughs> it cannot be done. No one, no one could possibly tell you where we'll be in two years' time. It, it can't be done. So I'd, the honest answer to your question is I don't know. But no, I don't see a way out of unfortunately accepting a course of action that is ruinous and us all having to live with the consequences and most importantly, not have some sort of civil war with each other, not hate each other as we walk down the street. It's an incredibly divisive thing that's happened. You use the word tragedy and so you're a parliamentary sketch writer, The Independent. Yeah. And usually your pieces are really witty and caustic, but with this piece, there's such a sadness to it and such a pathos. Like I, it's such, I, I, yeah, I felt that this this topic has really gotten to you. Yeah, well, it's strange, isn't it? Because a parliamentary sketch writer's job normally is to sort of look at these powerful people and bring them down a peg or two, like a little bit of mirth to puncture their pomposity or to, or to make them seem less high and mighty. But we have largely been made redundant. I mean, the, no one needs a witty, fun, lighthearted look at politics at the moment because it's so serious. It's so bad. Um, there are no, there is no one really who, I mean, if you're a satirist, what you want really is someone like Tony Blair or who, who is, who is this grand figure that needs to be reduced. But this shower, who, who, if it's my job to try and reduce them, I mean, reduce them to what? I mean, they are, it's, I've never really known anything like it. It's a, it's a total self-destruction. I mean, the the consent the consensus idea in politics is that you still is that you win elections from the middle, right? Mm -hmm. I still think that holds because no one lost, no one won the last one, did they? But if, if Labour has gone to its fringes, the Conservatives has gone to its fringes too. I don't really know how things will pan out, and I don't really know what what the job is for those who are there to try and make fun of the whole thing and make it all seem like a laugh because there's never really been a period like it. It's really serious what's happening. It just feels like you can't satire auto-satire where everyone is a parody of themselves. Yeah, exactly. What do you do with that? And so that leads me to my last question, which is, and it's something I think a lot about as well because I commission opinion pieces. What What is the role of an opinion writer right now with Brexit? Do we just reflect what people want to hear? Do we try lead some sort of way through the bramble or do we just despair over it? I really don't know how to what mm. people need from it right now. That's an interesting question because, of course, the Brexit story is huge and it will unfold over the next two years, but it will really unfold behind closed doors in high-stakes meetings between David Davies and Michel Barnier. And what the rest of us get to know about it is what these people decide to tell us, to you know, to leak to the occasional friend for their own mysterious reasons. Um, I don't know what people, what, what, people, what people want to read about Brexit over the next couple of years. Well, unfortunately be dependent on their own view, won't it? And everybody has a very strong opinion on it. I mean, and, and until, what was it? Those, those studies that show until 2013 when this referendum was, the decision to grant to have the referendum was given by David Cameron in his Bloomberg speech. There are studies that show that then, um, I think it's sort of 3% of the UK population considered the EU to be the most important issue facing the country. And now it's 90 and everybody has a very strong view. Um, the way that, technology and social media and, and not just social media but the internet has changed the way that people consume information and, and, and the, the rise of filter bubbles which is a huge problem what i think and not just 
opinion commissioners, but all journalists and all publishers should be thinking is what is, is to ask themselves the question, is what I'm writing dragging people out of that camp and bringing them into mine? Or at least addressing the people who are facing in the other direction? Because you can, you can write the, the most wonderful prose at saying how Brexit is going to be terrible. But if absolutely nobody is listening who doesn't agree with you, then it's not really going to achieve very much. So if you, I think the first question, journalists, publishers, writers, authors, poets, artists, whatever, the first question they have to ask now in 2017 with the way things have fundamentally changed is who is listening to this that would not otherwise be listening? What new markets am I taking this to? Who am I seeking to persuade? Because otherwise it's not really serving very much purpose. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Super pleasure. Thanks for listening. Next week, we have Dawn Foster coming in to talk about the housing crisis. So do subscribe on iTunes or Acast or wherever else you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Helen Hoddenot, who produced this episode. I'm Kirsty Major. See you next week. Today we are joined by Tom Peck, the Independence Parliamentary Sketchwriter, who will be reading and discussing his piece, If Nigel Farage thinks it's high time all youngsters are made to see Dunkirk, he's entirely missed the point of it. outro thanks for listening next week we have dawn foster coming in to talk about the housing crisis so do subscribe on itunes or acast or wherever else you get your podcasts special thanks to helen hoddenot who produces the episode <laughs> special thanks to helen hoddenot who produced this episode i'm kirsty major i'll be uh, i'm kirsty major see you next week i'll be seeing you i'll be seeing you next week <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Great. Awesome. 